Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anu Arafat, Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Hi, welcome back to the Irish Passport Podcast and today we'll be looking at some of the fascinating parallels between the history of anti-colonial struggle in Ireland and in India. We'll be hearing how Indian and Irish revolutionaries took inspiration from one another in the early 20th century, forged relationships and alliances with each other and even attempted to represent each other's cause in Parliament. We'll look at the experience of Indian students in Dublin in 1916, where they played a significant role in nationalist politics and ended up getting swept up into the political chaos of the Easter Rising. And we'll also hear how Irish people at the same time often formed an integral part of the colonial apparatus in India, demonstrating how Ireland often played the role of both coloniser and colonised. On this and many other things, we'll be hearing from Dr Connor Mulva from University College Dublin, who has this to say. Vivi Giri says he was very much taken by James Connolly during his time here. And when he goes back to India, Vivi Giri gets involved in transport and general workers union representation. Tim, I can tell that you got particularly stuck into the research on this because I've been see- receiving like <laughs> giddy texts from you for about two weeks about the latest thing that you've found out. Yeah, right. Yeah, That's, that's a dead giveaway when we've got a good episode, uh, Naomi. This history is so compelling, um, honestly. Like practically every time I turned a page, something else would make me gasp out loud about this. So I'm really looking forward to getting into it. Brilliant. And we've also, you know, this is an episode that we've been wanting to do for ages. And the topic was actually suggested to us by a listener to the podcast, Vikrant Sharma, who is a law student in India and also runs an international affairs website called The Global Telescope. And we'll put a couple of links in the show notes if you want to check that out. Um, So we finally got around to making this episode. So we contacted Vikrant to find out a bit more about why he had the idea of suggesting it. Well, the idea first came to my mind a couple of years ago when I traveled to Ireland. Now, before that, I did not really know much about Ireland. It was an academic opportunity. Uh, as a law student, I was given the opportunity to travel to Galway, uh, to NUI Galway for a summer school. And since I was visiting Galway, I decided to stay a week in Dublin. And while I was there, since I love history, I read up about the Easter Rising. I went to the places associated with it. I went to various museums, to the St. Stephen's Greens, and a lot of the conversation around the colonial struggle that I found existed in Dublin, in Ireland in general, had a lot of parallels with the colonial struggle in India. I had studied it from a very Indian perspective, but then reading up about the Irish struggle provided me with a lot of insight about how it was maybe more common to all the colonized countries at least for India and Ireland, than I had previously imagined. And that's why I reached out to you uh, when we had a conversation about maybe this is something that I think should be explored more because there are definitely uh, a lot of parallels. Naomi's full interview with Vikrant is excellent listening, by the way, and it's really dense with information on this topic. So if you want to find out more about the history between Ireland and India after you're done with this episode, we'll be posting it up in a little while on Patreon as a half-pint episode. 
Tim, I think a lot of listeners might be surprised to hear about the parallels between the history of Ireland and India, since the two places on the surface seem very, very different. So one Mm. is a small, rainy, underpopulated island in Western Europe, and the other one is one of the most populated modern states on the planet. It runs from Mm. the snowy Himalayas to the tropics and encompasses everything in between. But at the beginning of the 20th century, there were actually some really striking similarities between the two when it came to colonial strategies and anti-colonial resistance. Yeah, so let's break down some of those parallels now. I should mention at this point that most of the information I gathered for this episode came from two books in particular. The first one is called Imperial Violence and the Path to Independence by Shireen F. Ilahi. And the second one is Irish Days, Indian Memories by Conor Mulva, who, of course, we'll be speaking to later in the show. And those books are a great way to find out about uh, modern Irish-Indian links, so I thought I'd pass them on uh, to the listeners. We'll put the titles in the show notes. So kudos to them for everything that (laughs) that I'm, I'm presenting you with here. So yeah, what are the main links? Well, basically, by the end of the 19th century, the uh, continued control of both Ireland and India had become really disproportionately important to the survival of the British Empire. And that's one of the reasons why the respective independence movements of Ireland and India caused so much commotion at this point at the beginning of the 20th century. Okay, so when we're talking economics... India was the jewel of the crown in the British Empire, and it represented a powerhouse of Britain's industrial revolution. This was one of the most fertile and productive territories on earth, and it sent endless supplies of raw materials back to British markets. And it occupied an enormous amount of territory right at the crossroads of some of the world's most important trade routes. This simple fact that Britain controlled this key part of the world was one of the reasons why they had become the world's foremost superpower by the beginning of the 20th century. Economically speaking as well, Ireland was also strangely important to the empire, albeit in a a very different way. We've spoken before about how Ireland was used as a a breadbasket, quote-unquote, providing food for industrial Britain mainly right into the 20th century. So even though it was a a tiny little island and, you know, a fraction of the uh, economic worth of India, uh, Ireland played a very significant role in sustaining the industrial metropole during those years of imperial expansion. But all that aside, what really put India and Ireland in the same boat was their symbolic importance to the Mm. empire. Let's hear from UCD's Conor Mulva. I think to look at India and Ireland in the the linking factor of the British Empire really gets us to a fuller understanding of empire and also to those two very geographically distant areas. Without India, there would be no British Empire because it's as Empress of India that, that Queen Victoria gains that title. And Ireland then is Britain's oldest colony in in many ways. So these two very different exercises in colonisation create some of the cornerstones of what it means to be a British Empire and what a British Empire means both for the coloniser and the colonised. British imperialists were all too aware that if they lost India, they would immediately be toppled from their position as the world's foremost superpower. And likewise, if they lost Ireland, that would represent a fundamental disintegration of the imperial centre. And it would also demonstrate that even the smallest colonies could successfully overthrow colonial rule. So in both cases, the underlying fear was of contagion. Uh, At this point at the beginning of the 20th century, Britain's imperial territory had grown larger than any empire in history and it was becoming more and more difficult for London to keep control of it all. 
And if either Ireland or India broke free from British rule, the Crown feared that it would immediately instigate like a domino effect in British colonies across the world. Yeah, right. And and they were right to be worried about this. Both India and Ireland at this time were largely ruled by a small colonial elite. And that colonial elite uh, in both places was numerically quite vulnerable. And mm. also their authority in their respective communities had been steadily eroded over the previous decades, the second half of the 19th century. Mm. Also, in both places, these colonial regimes had developed just for practical reasons, a a highly educated kind of middle class among the native population. So these are like the civil servants and administrators of empire. Yeah, you know, because the actual colonial population was so small, they needed to educate locals to be responsible for running like the day-to-day aspects of the regime. And what we see really uh, by this time, to the horror of Westminster, is that this this kind of educated contingent of locals in both countries had started organising, like an organising highly effective independence movements. Another way that we can look at this is to go back to the 1850s and 60s. In 1857, India has its mutiny, which changes the relationship between Britain and India fundamentally. Skip forward 10 years in 1867, Ireland has its Fenian uprising, which again changes in some fundamental ways the ways in which Britain governs Ireland. The Irish Constabulary become the Royal Irish Constabulary after 1867. But by the mid to late 19th century, the relationships that the Imperial Centre Britain has with both Ireland and with India change fundamentally. And concurrent to this, we have the growth of a demand for home rule in Ireland. That's replicated by the creation of the Indian National Congress and eventually the creation of Indian home rule societies and clubs, which are the first points at which we see contact between Irish nationalists and emerging Indian nationalists. So at this point, let's take a step back and consider the larger context. So famously, the first significant British incursions into the Indian subcontinent were made by the British East India Company. They started by setting up ports and factories, mainly along the east coast of India, going all the way back to the 17th century. And they established extremely profitable trade routes that way back to Europe. And within about 100 years, British traders had become the dominant European presence in this part of the subcontinent. It started out more as an economic thing. And so for a large period of time, for more than a century, huge parts of India were not really directly ruled by the crown. They were ruled by the East India Company, the British East India Company. This idea of a trading company, you know, it might sound rather benign to modern ears, but we have to kind of realise that this was a very aggressive and expansionist form of settlement in itself. The East India Company essentially took control of whole regions and they militarised them. You know, they had soldiers with guns and private armies. So just like the English crown had done in Ireland a few hundred years earlier, the East India Company instigated a series of divide and rule tactics to consolidate their power in India. For instance, uh, they might offer certain local rulers political or economic privileges if they recognised East India Company jurisdiction uh, in their area, or they might form alliances with more friendly rulers against neighbouring states, and they they often exploited pre-existing grievances and conflicts between local rulers to weaken the local regimes as a whole. 
So all the while, as they were doing this, as they encouraged local rulers to fight among themselves, the East India Company were steadily annexing, essentially, huge swathes of Indian land. And by the 1850s, the company had come to control most of the Indian coastal territories in one way or another. And it was expanding further and further all the time into the interior of the Indian subcontinent. As Connor Mulva mentioned there, all of this ramped up considerably after a massive rebellion against the East India Company in 1857. Right, this is sometimes known as the Indian Mutiny, since it was instigated by uh, Indian soldiers who were employed by the East India Company. But a lot of people reject that name, Mutiny, because I suppose it represents the conflict through a very imperial prism, you know, like they're mutinying, you know, like they're <laughs> these, these loyal soldiers. Um, yeah, it, it, it comes with like a very loaded value judgment about it. It's like, you know... Yeah, doesn't it? They, they should be sort of like um, taking orders and they're rejecting them and that they could be, you know, shot for their disloyalty or something like that. Yeah, like it's unnatural, like it's yeah. not the way things are supposed to go. Yeah, exactly. So I think in India, it's sometimes called the first war of independence. And there's a few different terms that are used to, de- to describe this. Um, but anyway, that rebellion was really significant. It di- it failed. It didn't, it didn't succeed, but it was really bloody and really b- brutal. And most importantly, it shook the British government. You know, they really realized, oh my God, you know, we, we don't have the control over India economically that we that we wanted. And Westminster decided, you know, that's enough of this East India Company, you're not doing a good enough job. And Westminster just took control of India into their own hands. They consolidated alliances with powerful local leaders once again. And essentially, the, the British just annexed the entire subcontinent at this point. Uh, in that subcontinent, they installed a new colonial regime called the Raj, which worked alongside a lot of kind of princely states with local rulers uh, in alliance. Right. So this new territory, and it became known as British India, it was actually much larger than the modern state of India today because it encompassed what's now Pakistan, Bangladesh, and sometimes parts of Burma as well. And just like in Ireland, British India was ruled by a viceroy who was a colonial representative of the crown. Right. And and just like in Ireland too, India, you know, had this colonial elite. And just like in Ireland, this colonial elite, like I said, was vastly outnumbered by Indians. Yet they still held disproportionate power and privilege in the country. Now, to be vastly outnumbered in India means, you know, something very, very different than to be vastly outnumbered in Ireland. So to give you some figures here, uh, by 1901, the colonial population in India is estimated to have stood at just a bit less than 200,000 people. A huge proportion of those people were soldiers. So, Mm. you know, they, they were coming and going. The local population in the territory, on the other hand, stood at something more like 300 million people. Oh my god. So, yeah, so like these guys were a drop in the ocean in India. And it gives you an idea why it was so important uh, for the British to keep the local population divided among themselves. This was really the only thing by which they could maintain their power. Mm. And it also, you know, it gives an insight into the importance of psychological colonialism in this territory. Like when we think of the British Raj, think of like the British Raj being represented on film or on advertisements or whatever. Mm. And immediately you have opulence and tiger skins and like people parading around on elephants and all that, you know, like that's Mm. that's the image we have of it. And that's for a very good reason, because these symbols, symbols like that were constantly being displayed by the British in India. 
to show that their power was unassailable, that they had all this wealth, that they were these triumphant leaders, and mm. to create an illusion that they were undefeatable. You know, that was right. the, the reasoning behind it. You can see this in New Delhi today if you go and you, you see the really, really just incredibly ostentatious colonial government buildings that the Raj built. And that was all about proclaiming an authority that was based on an illusion uh, in India. Yeah. Interesting. So then... Similarly to Ireland, you have this governing class of a tiny colonial elite and they're aware of their own vulnerability. And I suppose that kind of links in with the familiar language that we have of colonialism, constantly telling people that they're incapable of ruling themselves and putting them through education systems that teach them that their own culture is backwards or inferior and that they should respect British culture above their own. And that might sound like simple supremacy or snobbery, which it also is, but it's also very important strategically when you're vastly outnumbered by those who you're trying to exploit. So, Tim, what about the Indian National Congress? Connor mentioned it there, and I understand this represented a backlash against colonial rule, which began to kind of snowball at the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah, so British India, like we mentioned, was massive. It was huge, and it required a colossal administration. To, to people that administration, the Raj set up a whole network of schools and universities, and they were mainly to train local Indians to work in these civil service posts. But of course, what the Raj had unwittingly just done um, in that scenario was to create a class of educated, financially stable people who understood the colonial system inside and out, and who knew exactly how it could be dismantled. Mm. So from the 1880s onwards, just at the exact same time when the Home Rule campaign was kicking off in Ireland, many of these middle-class Indians started forming movements like the Indian National Congress, which began to demand more political representation for Indians within the colonial regime. So by the beginning of the 20th century, movements like the Indian National Congress had also become more radical. Some of its members were now demanding total independence from Britain, while others were looking for a more moderate solution like dominion status. That in itself creates a fascinating parallel because the exact same discussions were happening in Ireland at the same time. Listeners will remember from previous episodes that radical nationalists wanted an independent Irish Republic, while moderate nationalists wanted autonomous home rule within the UK. Of course, the Irish Free State did ultimately end up with dominion status for a few years too. Let's hear from Vikrant again. The Congress was a group of leaders who sought more independence for India, sought more freedoms for India, for Indians. It basically represented the interests of Indians. And within that party, over early 20th century, emerged two different kinds of leaders. One were the moderates. The moderates wanted greater freedoms for India within the British Empire. They wanted a dominion status, for example, some of them. Some of them wanted largely independence, but they wanted it through political means. And so they wanted to fight in the local elections even though those elections did not really afford much power to the Indians. And then there was the other side, there were the radicals. The radicals wanted a violent struggle. They wanted to use arms, if necessary, to force their hand to get independence. Another parallel between Ireland and India at this time is the weight of recent grievances. Both countries had experienced popular uprisings in recent decades, but, but both countries too had recent experience of large-scale and devastating famines, which were both inextricable from colonial mismanagement. We, we know about the potato famine that hit 
Ireland and how devastating it was and how it changed Ireland and it still has ramifications to this day. There were a lot, a lot of famines in India during the British Empire as well. And the reasons for them, just like in Ireland, were not very different. It was government policy. It was economic policies of the time that said that the government should not help and let the free market decide what happens. If people die, it's an effect of overpopulation. It was racism that believed that the Irish and Indians maybe weren't worth saving as much as the English were. And it was apathy. It was people in a foreign land dying. It's fine. Maybe they should take care of themselves better. I'll give you a couple of examples with figures. So the Orissa famine of 1866. Now it's 1866, so it happened almost right after the potato famine. This killed over a million people in the state of Orissa, which according to BBC, is one out of three people died. And then the more famous, but still relatively less known, Bengal famine of 1943 killed two to three million people in the region of Bengal. And again, that studies have found that that was as much a British policy failure because the the Second World War was going on. They weren't really as much concerned about Indians losing their life as they were about the war effort. Indians, basically, they were left to their own devices. And a lot of blame for this is thrown at Winston Churchill. Yeah, Indian was a significant global economic power before colonialism. And it was really steadily impoverished over that period and left incredibly impoverished. Um, But perhaps we could focus in on the period from 1913 to 1916. As we've seen, tensions had been mounting in India for a long time and the Congress was growing more and more organised. In 1915, Mahatma Gandhi returned to India from South Africa and he would, of course, go on to take over the presidency of the National Congress. Meanwhile, on the other side of the world, Ireland was steadily bubbling up into its own insurrection and many of the radicals there were calling for similar freedoms from British rule. One fascinating intersection between these two independence movements can be seen in the small number of Indian law students who came to study in Ireland in 1913 and who witnessed and even participated in some of the most significant moments of the Irish Revolution. Among them, amazingly, was V.V. Geary, the man who would go on to become the fourth president of Free India in 1969. It wasn't unusual at all, uh, apparently, for Indian students to study law in British and in Irish universities. We have to remember that people moved around within the British Empire all the time. But what was particularly interesting about this was that these Indian students were studying firstly at King's Inns, which is the old law school in Dublin, but also they studied part of their course in University College Dublin, UCD, which was a relatively new university. Now, UCD had been originally set up to provide higher education for Catholics, which was lacking um, until the 19th century. But by this stage, it had become deeply associated with burgeoning nationalist movements. Let's hear from Conor Mulva, whose recent book, Irish Days, Indian Memories, explored the experience of those students who arrived in 1913. There were overall 50 Indian students between 1913 and 1917. At one point, one third of the law class in UCD were Indians, as well as their ordinary academic work. Some of these Indians, and I stress some, engaged in revolutionary activity and anti-imperial activity in that classic triangle of anti-imperialism between Ireland, South Africa and India. 
So just to set the scene here, the Dublin that those students would have arrived in was already experiencing total chaos. As we discussed in a recent episode, 1913 saw Dublin's greatest ever industrial dispute with thousands of workers protesting on the streets and being locked out of their places of work. That industrial dispute was also intimately intertwined with an explosion of nationalist politics, which was becoming increasingly radical as the British failed to deliver home rule. This was also a desperately poor city with some of the most extensive slums in Western Europe, But at the same time, it was a city within the United Kingdom. These Indian students were not only surrounded by radical Irish nationalists, but also by radical unionists. They would have been surrounded by Irish people who were actively involved in the colonial regime in India, as we'll explore later on. Lots of the Indian students who came to Ireland during these years were actually already active in anti-colonial movements back home. And it seems that a certain number uh, of these students took a keen interest in the methods of anti-colonial resistance that they were witnessing in Dublin, and not least during the lead-up to the Easter Rising. Conor Mulvan notes in his book that many were probably exposed to nationalist politics through their lecturers and fellow students in UCD. Some may have studied alongside Cahir David, son of the famous nationalist Michael David. Others possibly including Vivi Geary, may have been lectured by Thomas McDonough, who would later go on to be executed as one of the seven leaders of the Easter Rising. And to give you an idea of the import of that, reportedly during one of his lectures, McDonough actually took out a revolver from his pocket in the classroom and announced to his students that, I quote, Ireland can only win freedom by force. Subtle, subtle, Tom. (laughs) As well as all this political engagement, these students were subjected to quite a high level of state scrutiny. So the uh, Indian political intelligence was a group that was set up around this time. It's one of the precursors to MI5. These students were subjected to raids after the 1916 Rising. In one case, um, an Indian student, he had actually topped out the class for law in UCD and the King's Inns uh, in 1915. He was one of the most prominent law students to have emerged in this group and also among his Irish peers. He was his house was raided after the 1916 Rising. It's not hard to see why the British state might have fixated on these Indian students in Dublin. It does appear that some of them were conducting some kind of secret meetings to discuss armed resistance. Some may have been, may have been members of anarchist clubs. Um, but more than that, the, the political and ideological links between Indian and Irish nationalists at this time were often very, very explicit. You know, this is something that we don't hear much about anymore, but there's loads, there's loads of links here. Mm. Um, In 1914, an article appeared in the Irish nationalist newspaper, The Irish Volunteer. It was called Indian Nationality, a parallel with Ireland. Now, the author of that piece later turned out to be a man named Pangalori Sesha Talpasee, who claimed to have trained with the Irish volunteer militia. Now, he actually told this to Eamon de Valera later on. <laughs> he wrote it in a letter to Eamon de Valera after oh. Irish independence, when it was safe to admit this, that this guy was going around training with the Irish volunteers. Uh, the Irish volunteers, from memory, were set up to protect home rule at this point. And they were drilling and so on with hmm. rifles when they could get them or hurls if they couldn't. So that's so fascinating, Tim. Um, Let's Mm. quote a little bit from that article from Sesha Thalpasee. So it asserted that the methods of the colonial regime in India were, quote, well known in Ireland in the past, 
gagging the press, suppressing public meetings, deporting men without trials, inflicting capital punishment and actually murdering them. Then the economic drain, abnormal as it is, and the constant prevalence of famine and pestilence have become a byword of civilised government. An empire built on this sort of evil foundation must fall to pieces and involve worldwide disaster in its ruin. So he's, he's actually himself drawing the parallels between Ireland and India there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this was already quite established. So if we go back a few years before this, we can see the Irish Home Rule MP Frank Hugh O'Donnell, who uh, I found out when I looked him up, turns out went to the same secondary school as me, Naomi. (laughs) There you go. One one vaguely famous person, finally, who went to the same (laughs) secondary school as me. The other one is Lord Haw Haw. Oh, really? You know that? The the (laughs) Nazi propagandist. Yeah. Yeah, so he's one that, you know, we don't really shout about, but uh, O'Donnell (laughs) will do. Um, (laughs) So this guy, Frank Hugh O'Donnell, he had founded the Indian Constitutional Association in 1882 in Ireland. And that was a group promoting home rule government for India. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of his more ambitious plans, which never ultimately happened, was to have four Indian nationalists to be sent to Westminster to represent Irish constituencies so that they could use the Irish platform to further the cause of the Indian National Congress. Uh, So the idea was that both Irish and Indian agitators for home rule could, you know, show their mutual support for one another in Westminster. That is such a fascinating idea, because of course... Ireland had political representatives in Westminster at this point and India didn't. So he's basically mm. saying we'll we'll do like a swap. So like bring these guys in and get them into Westminster that way. That is so fascinating. So one recent event had made this alliance between Indian and Irish nationalists very high profile, which was that in July 1909, the assassination of a senior British colonial official by an Indian radical in London caused huge outrage across the UK. The name of the assassin was Madan Lal Dingra, and the official was one Curzon Wiley, the aide-de-camp to the Secretary of State for India. Okay, so so Dingra was sentenced to death for Wiley's murder, and his last words reportedly were, I quote, I am proud to lay down my life for my country. Keep, keep that quote in your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this caught the attention of Irish feminist organisations at the time. And as we've discussed in previous episodes, Irish feminists formed one of the fundamental cores of the Irish nationalist movement uh, in the 1910s. One of the people involved in the Dingra affair was Helena Maloney, who would go on to play a key role in the Easter Rising. So she helped organise pro-Dingra flyers with the suffragist group Inini Naharan. Maloney also happened to be the editor of the nationalist feminist newspaper Ban Naharan, which was also adamant in its defence of Dingra. Here's an extract from that newspaper in 1909. The assassination of the officials who exploit India and the Indian people for the enrichment of England is an eventuality that the English had not reckoned on. For the Indian to retaliate when he was kicked like a dog is unthinkable. Now that Dingra has retaliated on behalf of his country, all England shrieks, murderer. The same hypocritical cry swept England when Burke and Cavendish were killed in the Phoenix Park as when Wiley was killed in London. The Phoenix Park incident that's referred to there, by the way, refers to the murder of two senior figures in Ireland's colonial administration by Irish rebels in 1882, kind of parallels in those incidents. The very fact that Ban Naharan 
the newspaper compared these two assassinations. Therefore, this would have been extremely resonant for both Irish and Indian nationalists. They're, they're drawing parallels there. The flyers that these feminist organisations were putting out around Dublin were being put on uh, symbols of Irish nationalism, like statues of the rebel uh, Robert Emmett and stuff. And the flyers reportedly said, I am proud to lay down my life for my country. So they're, oh. they're using these words of this assassin, this kind of outlaw, this you know, symbol of, of the rupture of law and order within the United Kingdom and celebrating it and also using it to create a parallel with Irish nationalists. Now, I want to stick with that Ban Naharan article for a moment because it doesn't stop there. It goes on to make this proclamation. So I quote, The England that has brought famine and death to untold thousands in India, that slew in her African concentration camp 20,000 Boer women and children, that organised a famine in Ireland, whereby two millions of our people died by the roadside. This pious Christian hypocrite, England without pity, without shame, with nothing but her blind and boundless greed. She has sown dragon's teeth, and they have sprung up armed men. If Curzon Wiley was murdered, England, and not Dingra, was the murderer. Uh, oh my god. <laughs> this, is a, this is a badass group of feminists, Naomi. <laughs> So these were a very militant wing of the Irish suffrage uh, movement. They were much closer aligned to James Connolly and trade unionism. Helena Maloney had set up the Irish Women Workers Union. And they're very different to the other wing that we would look at, which would be Hannah Shee Skeffenden, Frank Shee Skeffenden, who write in the Irish Citizen. Um, these are much more militant suffragists. And as such, they're the ones involved in putting up the placards and they provide other supports for, for Indians. But I argue that this sends out something of a signal. We, we can never truly tell, particularly with the intense censorship that Britain affected upon the Indian subcontinent in this era, how much Indians would have known about this. But they make it very clear in a public way that they want to reach out to India and they want to underline the anti-imperial solidarities between radicals in both countries. Now, Conor Mulva notes that another intriguing intersection between the Indian students and Irish nationalism was, <laughs> amazingly, Dublin's only vegetarian restaurant at the time. So there was one vegetarian restaurant on Henry Street in the north of Dublin City, and it was called the Irish Home Farm Produce Cafe, and it became kind of notorious. It was also a place where the Indian students were likely hanging out quite a bit because a lot, if not all, of those students uh, would have been vegetarian. And this, you know, this was one of the few places really in Dublin they could have found a completely meat-free meal. Now, this cafe, like I said, was notorious. It was run by yet another nationalist feminist, a woman named Jenny Wise Power. And it also happened to be one of the city's most scandalous hotbeds of underground rebel activity. In the book, I document how vegetarianism may have been one of the ways that Indians and Irish suffragists came together. So I look at uh, the Irish Farm Produce Cafe, which is run by Nancy Weiss Power, um, who was involved in the Ladies' Land League. And this is one of the places where one could get good vegetarian fare in Dublin at the time. And in memories of Giri that his family wrote to me about, they said that his landlady used to always provide him with coffee and biscuits in the morning because they knew he probably wouldn't get fed well in Dublin, which was such a meat-orientated society. But the Irish Farm Produce Cafe, I speculate, is, is one of the places where Indian students could have encountered Irish radicals. We know they did encounter them because they wrote in the Irish Volunteer and there were pieces about India and Ban Naharan. 
Um, but it's either in UCD or, or in sites like this that we, we speculate they probably had their first contact. Interestingly, the Irish Farm Produce Cafe gains, I suppose, notoriety because that's where the proclamation is supposedly signed by the seven signatories. The Irish Farm Produce Cafe eventually becomes an arms dump and it's one of the places that's being uh, put under surveillance before the 1916 Rising. Jenny Wise Power's daughter, Nancy, actually gave an account to the Bureau of Military History about the hive of activity that this shop and their house, which was above it, represented during these years and in the build up to the rising. So in that account, she talks about returning home one day to discover that Countess Markovich has set up quarters in the house (laughs) because she's preparing to have a rebellion and she's fearing that, you know, there may be a preemptive move to bar people from the city centre. Like there were copies of proclamations being hidden under beds preparation of medical packs and like all manner of activity going on there and the authorities knew of this like it was well known and we know that they know because they had an informant who was codenamed Chalk he happened to appear or he or she happened to appear in a documentary I made a little while back and Chalk was reporting back to Dublin Castle about the goings-on. So like watching this shop and restaurant and seeing who was going in and out. You can actually see those intelligence reports that Chalk gave in British archives over in Kew. And I've, I've gone and had a look at them. And here's just a sample report, for example, which shows what was going on in this vegetarian restaurant a few weeks before the 1916 rebellion. So Chalk says, On Tuesday 28th, Thomas McDonough, our friend, and two other Sinn Feiners were seen to enter the restaurant in Henry Street, owned by Mrs W Power, and carrying heavy handbags, which they left inside. It is believed that they contained ammunition. Oh my God, Naomi. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I just like my head is swimming with images of bags of rifles and proclamations sitting side by side with like tofu burgers, <laughs> like bean sprouts. But like, can we just take a moment here and appreciate how incredibly wild Dublin was in 1913? Yeah. Like, I, I think at this point uh, in our research, when we got to the vegetarian restaurant, I, I was just like, <laughs> wow, like what the hell was this place like? On the one hand, you have this extraordinarily impoverished city, you know, with these extensive slums like collapsing on themselves left, right and centre. You probably have all sorts of people coming in from the country, you know, maybe wearing traditional shawls or speaking Irish or whatnot. And then you have this like explosive worker strike going on right now, you know, throwing the place into chaos for most of the year with police batons like burning tenement blocks and mm. people like Jim Larkin bursting out of windows to denounce capitalism. At the same time, you have these feminists publicly celebrating the murder of colonial officials. <laughs> you have you have Indian students jumping headfirst into radical nationalism. You have like the signatories of the Easter Rising meeting up in a subversive vegetarian cafe, which is also <laughs> an arms dump. Like, I mean... <laughs> and like what really strikes me is that all the while you still had this full and functioning British colonial administration just kind of going on as normal in the background, you know, like all these titled landlords and elites, you know, just kind of going about their business. It must have been insane. Like, it's such a bizarre (laughs) and fascinating hodgepodge of the old and the new, like, um, existing at the same place and and time. Yeah, well put, Tim. And, like, consider this as well. Like, something we shouldn't forget is that not everyone in Dublin was some kind of pro-Indian freedom fighter, like far from it. Mm. Conor Mulva notes that in the midst of this chaos, the Indian students in Dublin were themselves subjected to the kind of racism and discrimination that their counterparts were receiving in Britain. In 1916, from about February until April, 
there was a newspaper in Ireland called The Eye Opener. The paper was hugely anti-Semitic. It was like a scandal sheet. And in one of their issues, they started to publish a series of articles called The Black Peril, where they said that Indian students uh, in Dublin were going out with white women and this was a moral panic. And this is something we see in Britain at the time and we see in Cork as well in terms of fears around Cork women going out with American soldiers. So it is very much of its time in some ways. But the Indians here were very proactive and what they did was they went to the chief secretary and they said, if we're British citizens, we're to be treated as British citizens and we deserve equality under the law. We want you to shut down this publication. Every week, 10,000 people in Dublin were buying this eye-opener publication, which was an anti-Semitic, racist rag of a paper. And the Indian students said they, they were taunted by uh, street children around Dublin, chanting Black Peril at them as they walked between UCD and the National Library and the King's Inns. So it really strips back that glorified nationalist myth we've been given of Ireland and paints a much grubbier, more segregated, more fearful city. So this kind of brings us to one of the most complex dimensions of all of this. While there were all of these growing links between Indian and Irish nationalists, other Irish people were also deeply involved with the colonial governance of India. Like at this point, Ireland was part of the UK and therefore it was part of the British imperial metropole. And as Conor Mulva explains, colonial India offered Irish people, and particularly Irish Catholics, access to opportunity, a route to wealth that might not have been possible or available for them back home. And for this reason, Irish participation in the Raj was particularly high. The vast bulk of the population are engaging with empire, willingly or otherwise. And there we have Irish people acting simultaneously as colonised and as colonisers because there wasn't the same barriers for religion in terms of being a Catholic, entering the Indian civil service or the Indian army, as there was in terms of systemic issues with Irish people of the Catholic faith entering the British army and the British civil service. So a lot of Irish people entered and prospered uh, the Indian civil service and army, individuals like Anthony Patrick MacDonald, who later became undersecretary in Dublin Castle, and Michael Dwyer, who went down in infamy as the overall administrator of the Punjab at the time of the infamous Amritsar massacre in 1919. Interestingly, uh, Shireen F. Ilahi notes that Ireland was often seen as a kind of training ground for colonial officials uh, to be sent to India, whether they were Irish or British. It was actually extremely common for colonial officials and military commanders to have served in both Ireland and India at one point mm. or another. And the extent to which Irish people could often play central roles in the atrocities of British colonialism in India is nowhere more evident than in the case of Michael O'Dwyer, who Connor just mentioned there. O'Dwyer was born in Barronstown in County Tipperary in 1864. Uh, He came from a pretty well-to-do Catholic family. He was educated at Oxford and he joined the Indian Civil Service after that. And by 1912, he had risen really, really far and he had become the lieutenant governor of Punjab. So this wasn't a small task. Punjab was a major locus of anti-colonial activism at this point. In 1915, a pan-Indian mutiny had been organised by Indian soldiers there. And even though this and other revolutionary plots were thwarted, the local colonial administration was increasingly paranoid about rebellion. 
O'Dwyer believed that revolution could happen at any moment, and he was instrumental in pushing through some seriously brutal measures against political and civil liberties to keep the population in check. And part of those measures involved the secret deportation of independence movement leaders, which made O'Dwyer particularly unpopular with the people of Punjab. Okay, right. Now, listeners, don't get confused here as we have two very similar names coming up. So Michael O'Dwyer, Lieutenant Governor of Punjab, had a commanding military officer whose name was Reginald Dyer, D-Y-E-R. So mm-hmm. just to, to avoid confusion, Naomi, I'm just going to call him Reginald here, <laughs> Reginald okay. Dyer. So Reginald, he was born in colonial India, but he also happened to have been educated in Ireland from the age of 11, I think. Mm-hmm. And he had even served as a riot control officer in Belfast. So by 1919, Reginald was basically Michael O'Dwyer's right-hand man in the Punjab military. So this guy, Reginald, was notoriously oppressive in his role. Like, to give an example, on the 10th of April 1919, a British mission doctor named Marcella Sherwood had been attacked by a mob during a riot against unfair imprisonment of protesters. And in retaliation, Reginald issued an order requiring all Indian men who travelled down the street where it happened to crawl on their hands and knees. According to Strobe Tabot's book, Engaging India, Reginald later explained to a British inspector that, quote, some Indians crawl face downwards in front of their gods. I wanted them to know that a British woman is as sacred as a Hindu god, and therefore they have to crawl in front of her too. Right, so so we already have this sense of kind of deep derision and subjugation uh, in, in this guy's mind. But it was what happened three days later that would throw colonial India into complete disarray. On the 13th of April 1919, there was the traditional festival of Valsaki in the Punjab city of Amritsar. Michael O'Dwyer's unpopular measures around this time meant that there was significant political unrest in the city, just as the festival was scheduled to take off. Mm. So the gathering for the festival was seen as a threat by the colonial regime. Reginald, the commanding officer, immediately banned all public gatherings, and he announced an 8pm curfew for the city of Amritsar. Nevertheless, thousands of locals ignored the commands. You know, they were going to their festival. They didn't care. This was a peaceful, you know, meetup anyway. So they Mm -hmm. assembled, despite the curfew, at a walled public garden in the city called Jalianwala Bag. A festival approached, a big cultural festival called Besaki in Punjab. A lot of people from outside the city gathered in the Jalianwala Bag. It's basically a walled garden, a huge walled garden. It's walled from all four sides. There are five entrances. Four of them are really tiny. So only a few people can come and go at a time. There was one big entrance. What happened on the day of Besaki was that a lot of people gathered in the garden to celebrate the harvest. It's a festival of harvest. And there were discussions, non-violent discussions, some say. But mostly it was only a f- gathering to celebrate a long-standing harvest festival. Soon, somewhere between 10 and 20,000 people are estimated to have assembled at the Jallianwala Bag Garden. And even though this was a peaceful crowd who had come for a community celebration, the colonial regime completely panicked. 
Reginald showed up with 90 soldiers armed with bolt-action rifles, as well as two armoured cars. Now, Vikrant mentioned there that there were very, very few entries and exits. And what the soldiers did was they blocked all those exits in and out of the garden. And Reginald later testified to an inquiry that he did this, I quote, to punish the Indians for their disobedience. As the crowd realised that they had been trapped in this walled garden by an armed military, panic began to spread. And all at once people began to rush towards the few narrow exit points. At this point, Reginald ordered his troops to start shooting into the oncoming crowd. Soldiers reportedly fired continuously for 10 minutes, expending 1,650 rounds of ammunition into this walled pen where people could not get in or out. Now, a lot of these soldiers who were following his orders were of Indian origin, and he himself had studied for years in Ireland and he had, I believe, Ireland, Irish heritage. And still this happened and he, according to reports, he f- asked his soldiers not to fire in the air, to fire repeatedly for 10 minutes in the thickest part of the crowd. And this led to over 300 deaths by a, the most conservative estimate. Some estimates say that over a thousand people died because of the firing and over a thousand were injured. And this marked one of the most violent, one of the most brutal incidents of violence in the history of colonialism in India. And many believe that this was one of the pivotal points that in the end led to Indian independence. The number of people who died in the Amritsar massacre is heavily disputed. A British inquiry called the Hunter Commission took place after the massacre, and that concluded that just under 400 people had died. But there's lots of reasons why people didn't and still don't trust those figures. In the immediate aftermath of the massacre, it seems like the colonial regime tried to quash all reports of anything happening at all. Reportedly, they even managed to keep the incident out of British newspapers for nine whole months. So nobody back in Britain knew that this had happened at all. So that suggests that they were hoping to silence this completely. So it's very hard to believe anything they say, really. A later Indian inquiry found that up to 1,500 people uh, were probably killed. You know, we'll, we'll probably never know the figure for sure. Like I said at the beginning, we don't even know how many people were in the garden, between 10 and 20,000. They're just, it's very hard to know at this stage. Mm. There are some things we do know for sure, some horrible things. One of the dead, for instance, was a six-week-old baby. We also know that some victims were killed directly by machine gun fire, while a lot of others were crushed in the stampede. And tragically, about 120 dead bodies were later found at the bottom of a well in the centre of the garden. And people have hypothesised that these people must have jumped into the well just to escape the rain of bullets. Mm, God. So even though the military inquiry found that Reginald's actions had been, I quote, inhuman, ultimately, Reginald received no penal or disciplinary action for what he'd done, Instead, he was just quietly taken out of his job and sent back to London. Meanwhile, O'Dyer stood entirely behind Reginald and his actions. There is one more chapter to this horrific history, and it wasn't to take place for another 20 years. So in 1940, 
20 years after the Amritsar massacre, Michael O'Dwyer was making a speech for the East India Association at Caxton Hall in London. Now, at this stage, he had come out relatively okay from all this. He was being celebrated, you know, as this great man of empire and all this. And here he was kind of giving advice about ruling an empire uh, to people in London. But one of the people in that crowd in London happened to be a 41-year-old man from Punjab named Udam Singh. And Udam Singh had actually been present that day in the garden in Amritsar in 1919. So when the meeting had finished, Udam Singh stood up and he calmly took out a revolver and he shot Michael O'Dwyer twice in the heart. At this point, remember, many in Britain considered O'Dwyer and Reginald to be heroes of empire. Yeah, right. Like the Times of India points to one obituary that was published in a Lancashire newspaper in 1940 after Michael O'Dwyer's assassination. And it read, I quote, Only the firmness of Sir Michael saved a desperate situation. He crushed the revolt like an eggshell. And immediately he and General Dyer, that's Reginald, were acclaimed by the British community in India as the saviours of India. Which is, you know, that's something else. (laughs) Yeah, that's something else about, like, opening machine gun fire into a peaceful crowd that can't get away to be the saviors of India. harvest festival. Yeah. It's, I mean, yeah. It it just goes, I mean, it does go to show you how the rhetoric of empire, you know, just kind of using words of heroism and greatness and, you know, saviors of this and that. It can be used just to brush aside such brutal realities and to put this veneer of like respectability or nobility over what is essentially like barbarism. And something else that's worth pointing out as well is the amount of effort that was put in to preserving a positive legacy, like a positive historical memory of empire. Actual instructions came from London to the former colonial states as they broke free, instructing the administrations there on how to destroy documents, you know, and documents Mm. were destroyed en masse and have been hidden and haven't come to light for years. There's been a deliberate attempt, like it shows, it shows guilt, I think. I show, I think the, the, the cover up shows that people knew that this was wrong, because Mm. if you were completely convinced it was right, why would you stop all news of it coming out for six months? In England, you know, if this really was this like triumphant, whatever, saving of in- India or whatever they're, they're trying to say, you know, and then yeah. I think this is kind of a covering up of shame that you've got this 20 years later, two decades down the line, this need to remember people differently as heroes and so on. I mean, it really struck me how much cover up is such an integral strategy and has been such an integral strategy to imperial motives. I mean, the first thing that I thought of, of course, when I when I looked at this Hunter Commission was of the commission immediately after Bloody Sunday, which was also mm. a whitewash uh, and a cover up. And, you know, that was happening in the 70s, in the 1970s. This was happening right. in the 1920s. I mean, so there is just zero reason why we should really believe anything that the colonial regime said at all. You know, they've kind of proved themselves untrustworthy on a very consistent basis, really. So unsurprisingly, people in India saw things very differently. So like Vikrant mentioned earlier, this very gruesome episode of mass murder is seen as a turning point for the Indian independence movement. 
Yeah, and considering that all of this was carried out, remember, under the watch of an Irishman, the timing of all this is also really intriguing. So in 1919, Ireland was actively engaged in the War of Independence against British rule. And at around the same time as O'Dwyer and Reginald Dyer were defending their cases, other Irish soldiers in the Indian regiments were launching protests against the colonial regime themselves. In June 1920, Irish soldiers from the Connacht Rangers Regiment in Jalandar proclaimed that, quote, they had finished soldiering for England <laughs> and staged a mutiny against their superiors. And this was in protest to the ongoing atrocities of the Black and Tans back in Ireland. So, of course, the Black and Tans were a ragtag militia that were sent into Ireland by Winston Churchill to quash the rebel government. And they were notorious for their use of arson, torture, reprisals on lo- local civilians, large-scale u- looting, this kind of thing. And 13 of the Irish mutineers uh, in India were sentenced to death, although ultimately only one was actually executed. That was James Daly, who became the last ever soldier in the British Army to be shot by firing squad. Right, so this reminds us that back in Ireland, the political climate had been transformed by the Easter Rising of 1916. The country had descended into armed revolution. And I think at this point, it's interesting to come back to those Indian law students that we met earlier. Right. So these students, of course, were still studying in Ireland when the Easter Rising broke out. Uh, But what's Mm. fascinating is that many of them seem to have taken inspiration from this Irish rebellion for resistance movements back in India. So V.V. Geary, for example, wrote in his memoir that while in Ireland, he had become a friend of the socialist leader, James Connolly, one of the leaders of the rebellion. He writes, quote, I remember vividly meeting Connolly on several occasions as I was regularly invited to Irish Citizen Army meetings. More than any of the leaders of the uprising, it was Connolly who inspired me. I resolved that as soon as I returned to India, I would give a graphic account of these struggles to inspire our own people. Another Dublin student named Palaszczuk Hanumaya Gupta, who was at UCD at the same time as Geary, became a leader of the independence movement in the eastern district of Guntur after he came back. And he did that by starting to organise boycotts. Um, which of course, huh. yes, indeed, which of course had famously been a major strategy of, of the nationalist movement in Ireland. And later he formed a volunteer force, just like the Irish volunteers in Dublin, which would have been very, very visible on the streets to these Indian students while they were studying. The volunteers that he set up in India, of course, were unarmed, and that was all in a framework of non-violent protest. Mm. Here's Conor Mulva again on how the Indian students adapted what they had learned in Ireland on their return home. Interestingly, one of the things it seems they did was they organized volunteer units. So they, they directly copied the, the Irish model. We know not a huge amount about this. There, there's a, a work that was published about the work in, in Guntur and around that district by some of these revolutionaries. Some of them also wrote important literary texts. So one of the most important texts in the Telugu language called Malipali. And this is written by one of the students who studied in UCD. And there's a statue to him um, at a place called Tankbund, which is like the it's kind of like a pantheon place where, where the important regional figures are in Hyderabad in India. But some of them were also involved in more trade union activities. Vivi Giri says he was very much taken by James Connolly during his time here. And when he goes back to India, Vivi Giri gets involved in transport and general workers union representation. And he eventually becomes the uh, general secretary or the leader of the All India Railway Men's Federation. And he organises one of the largest 
strikes of railway workers ever in Indian history, which eventually ends in a lockout where the company locks out the Indian workers. In India, Giri's lockout seems to work. Um, and he does say that he was very much influenced by Connolly. There also seems to have been a long-standing sense of affection between some of these Indian students and the Irish nationalist leaders, which lasted well after both countries had attained their independence. As president, Vivi Giri was said to have always maintained huge respect for the rising veteran Eamon de Valera, who would go on to become Taoiseach and then president of the Irish Republic. Giri was even said to have declared on occasion that, quote, when I am not an Indian, I am an Irishman. Eamon de Valera himself, unsurprisingly, was a passionate defender of Indian independence. This is this is right up Eamon de Valera's alley, all this. Um, <laughs> In 1920, while the Irish War of Independence was still raging on, and fresh in the aftermath of the Amritsar Massacre, of course, he gave a speech in New York, which was titled India and Ireland. Now, it's Mm. about 24 pages long, and it's freely available online if you want to look it up. Um, So I do urge you to, to go and read that if you're interested. Here is some of what he says in that speech. I've had to abridge this because, you know, these these early 20th century, very wordy sentences aren't aren't podcast friendly. (laughs) Patriots of India, your cause is identical with ours. We in Ireland, comparatively small in number, close to the seat of Britain's imperial power, have never despaired. You people of India, remote from her, a continent in yourselves, 70 times as numerous as we are, surely you do not despair. There is a book called Prosperous British India by William Digby. I was looking at it today. Mr. Digby's book tells us how Britain has drained India of its wealth. We do not need books to convince us that the imperial motive is greed. It does not surprise us in Ireland who know what British rule means. This book tells us that Britain has plundered India. Of course she has plundered India. What else is she in India for? A British statesman once spoke of the increasing Irish population as a menace to Britain, and in a few years an artificial famine was brought about and they killed off our people by the million. Do we doubt that in full consciousness they act likewise today in India? The people of India, we are told by British apologists, are backward and ignorant, lazy and unable to rule themselves. They have made exactly the same pretense about Ireland. We of Ireland and you of India must each of us endeavour, both as separate peoples and in combination, to rid ourselves of the vampire that is fattening on our blood. Our cause is a common cause. (gasps) Oh my god. (laughs) Now, (laughs) this was one of the things that I texted to Naomi, by the way, giddily, when I I came (laughs) across it. Um, Especially because I could not help but hear De Valera's voice in this speech. Like, if you've ever heard De Valera speak, he has this very distinctive, you know, wartime voice. You know, patriots of India, your cause (laughs) identical as... It's it's really striking. And I I wish there was a recording, but I couldn't find it. But um, keep that in mind uh, when you read it. Tim, you should have done the De Valera voice throughout. <laughs> I, I'm sure that there's better there's better interpreters than me, I think. So one last link between Ireland and India is one that has continued to reverberate in both countries right into the present day, which is, of course, partition. 
Both countries, of course, were partitioned by the British Empire along religious lines. You've got similar scenes of, you know, civil servants drawing lines across a map, literally. And in many ways, this was a continuation of the original divide and rule tactics, which they had relied on so heavily for control. Decades after independence of both territories, those partitions continued to be a major source of conflict. Here's Vic Grant again. I wanted to ask you before you go about another kind of parallel history that there is with Ireland and India, and that's the experience of partition, which has been, you know, it was another leg, it was a legacy of empire in both places and very traumatic in both. Um, is that something that's discussed at all as a, as a kind of a commonality between the two nations? I did consider that. Now, in India, the partition was is considered a direct result of British policies. The British in India, as I suppose in Ireland, worked on the principle of divide and rule. And so there was a lot of attempts made, especially for the few decades just before independence, to keep the Hindu and the Muslim populations divided. There was even a communal award that was protested against, and there was such a huge political storm over it in 1930s that it had to be taken back. But there were many, many attempts made under British Empire to basically divide the Hindus and the Muslims so that they did not unite in the struggle against the empire. And as a direct result of that, the divisions grew to the extent that certain leaders felt that they had to create a separate state for Pakistan for, for Muslims, which is where Pakistan originated from, the idea of Pakistan. In history, Pakistan and India have never really been separate. Like I told you, I come from the state of Punjab. Now, Punjab is a state that, along with Bengal, these were the two states that suffered the result of partition the most. The, these were states that were divided in the middle for partition. Punjab was divided into two one half went to Pakistan, one half went to India. They still exist by the same name today. So there's a Punjab in Pakistan, there's a Punjab in India, and Bengal, the region of Bengal was divided into what was then East Pakistan, now Bangladesh, and the state of West Bengal in India. And so these two states felt extremely violent a result of uh, the colonial enterprise as they left. My grandparents actually remember their struggles during partition because it was an extremely, extremely violent time. It was basically like telling uh, people that people who had lived in a place for centuries, telling them that they had to leave and settle somewhere where they probably had never been, just on the basis of what their religion was. Uh, even today, India and Pakistan are not really on friendly terms. They have fought wars, they have extremely huge differences, and all of it resulted from the colonial enterprise. Listen, Naomi, we're coming to the end of this episode, sadly, but I have to say one more time just how blown away I was by this history. Isn't it, like, isn't it so interesting? It's absolutely fascinating and it's so rich and I feel like it's a topic for further study, not just the history of links between Ireland and India, but also other colonial nations because I think that we sometimes assume that in the past people were more parochial than they really were. This really shows us how internationally linked politics was at the time. You know, we're talking about these uh, influences that are going from India to Ireland and Ireland to India and back again. They were talking to each other. They knew about each other. You know, they supported each other's causes. And I think that's something that we don't fully appreciate. History tends to or has tended to sort of study 
in geographical isolation. But these intimate links are something I think which is sort of deserving of its own project and like kudos to Conor Mulva for focusing on that as well. I think it's also interesting to note how you have these simultaneous currents, like you have these radical nationalists, feminists who were very much sympathetic to the Indian national co- nationalist cause. And then you've got mm-hmm. these other people who have fully bought in to the British Empire as a route to personal success and wealth. You know, you had just in the past as in today, you have people with different beliefs, you have varying groups in society. Ultimately, it was the, the pro-independence forces, those who, uh, who rejected imperialism, colonialism that prevailed. Yeah, I, I totally agree, especially about this this idea of, uh, or this recognition that like small little local independence movements like what happened in Ireland were inextricable from these global tides, you know, and like mm-hmm. from that point of view, I just really, I really wish like after researching this, I just really wish it was more of a thing that Irish people knew about. Like, I I didn't know about so much of this and, you know, I would have loved to have and I think Irish people would love to know about this. Like, this would be a great subject for the secondary school curriculum, for instance. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it would be a brilliant topic. I, I started looking up some Irish Indian cultural associations that I could join because I'm just really hungry to find out more about this. Um, I don't have a minute in my day, so that probably won't happen. But if you if you do have any um, tips, listeners, do send them to us. So a huge thanks again to Connor Mulva and to Vikram Sharma for helping us out with this episode. And as we said, we'll be releasing a full interview with Vikrant as a half pint shortly. It's a really, really great interview. I, I love doing it. So do listen out for that one. As always, if you want even more half pint extra content, you can head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash the Irish passport and become a supporter of the podcast today and you will help keep us running at the same time. You slon everyone. Slon. <laughs>